Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Anne Donahoe and Lewis Goldberg of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the CEOs, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. Today, Lewis and Anne are speaking with themselves. The Green Rush is a podcast created by KCSA Strategic Communications, a firm that has, over the last five years, established itself as the leading public and investor relations firm serving the cannabis industry. Recently, KCSA fielded a survey gauging investor sentiment and exposure to the cannabis industry, and the results are fascinating. Turns out that average investors are buying a lot of cannabis stocks and plan on holding them for a long time. Lewis and Ann are speaking today with Todd Fromer, managing partner at KCSA. Todd manages KCSA's investor relations practice and has been working in the IR field for more than 20 years. If you have a real interest in the investment side of the cannabis business, if you own any stock in this industry, and if you get why this podcast is called The Green Rush, then this episode is for you. Don't sit back, lean forward. Now on to the conversation. So, Anne, we have a unique uh, a guest coming up, which is Todd Fromer, um, my business partner here at KCSA. Uh, for those who listen, I am a partner at KCSA. I oversee um, the, the in public relations practice of our business and help launch the, the cannabis practice with Phil and with you five years ago. Todd is a unique cat. You know, he's definitely got his own style. Uh, he did great. I mean, we're recording this after, just after we interviewed Todd. So we're kind of, um, it's fresh in our minds. And he he's just gives a really interesting, very tactical like perspective. So, and we're going to talk about something that, that I'm super excited about. We did our own study. Um, so, you know, we always joke that we, uh, suffer from the shoemaker's children's syndrome where, um, you know, we don't, we don't get out there and promote ourselves and do our own marketing for KCSA because we're so busy working on our clients business. But this is an instance where, um, we really wanted to do a deep dive into, um, you know, how, how investors are spending their money. And so, um, we did a survey, fielded a survey, um, and that's what this, that's what you're going to hear. Um, and I think it's just, it's really interesting. It takes the conversation in really interesting directions. And, um, I think this should be the first of many. I think we use this as a benchmark and we, um, we look at it again in, in six months or eight months or, and just kind of see, see where, where the investors are. Cause I think it's fascinating. Eight months. Who does it? Who does a know. study every eight months? I don't know. I mean, six I months was... makes sense. But <laughs> eight. Come on. <laughs> um, so the, the, the study that we did, we, we put out a poll uh, or survey to literally tens of thousands of investors who we have touched um, through our work with the, you know, the dozens of cannabis companies um, and, and non-cannabis companies, you know, the literally hundreds of companies that we represent and to see what their take on the cannabis industry was. Are they invested in it? you know, what their exposure is, what their beliefs are. Um, and there were some really interesting findings. Uh, I think that, you you know, there was something that you pointed out to me. <laughs> Go ahead. You can laugh, but you bring it up because I think it's an interesting, I do think it's an interesting 
conversation to have. And um, yeah, I mean, the the study skews incredibly white and incredibly male and on the I, older side. I, re- I resemble that remark. Yes, you do. But, you know, and, and we talked about it earlier. And is that, um, you know, it's certainly not something that we intended for. Um, but, you know, if anyone who's put a study in the field, the data takes you where the data takes you. So um, I, I don't know if that's um, endemic of, you know, women aren't participants or we're just not talking to a lot of women and not finding a lot of women and, and people of color as well. This was, um, you know, uh, it's, it's data, it's important. Um, but I think it'd be really interesting to see, um, to see more people represented next time, you know, in eight months when we do it again. (laughs) I I think it's, it's hard (laughs) to, there is a, there is a fundamental, problem and we've talked about this the stu- the suits versus the stoners um and i think it you know this tension between the historic market participants and the the wall street money that has come into the industry and i don't know if this is reflective of that if it, 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 it I, i'm not sure but it doesn't surprise me that the respondents to this tended to skew more white and male because people who own individual stocks tend to be more white and male than the general population. So it's just it's just reflective of that. I mean, we talk a lot about investing, but what is the, you know, only 50% or so of Americans are even invested in the stock market. So already we're cutting, you know, we're cutting the population in half. Right. Probably by income um you know, and and the like. So I think well, income, education, right. gender, yeah. all of that, yeah. and race. And I could be wrong on. We'll figure out what the what the percentage is and stick it in the show notes. But yeah, it's it's. I remember being surprised by that number. For me, the biggest surprise, and well, we we talked about it, or we'll talk about it, or I don't know. The the, the this is, feels like an Avengers, like going back in time, trying to figure <laughs> shit out moment here. But spoiler. It, <laughs> oh, give me a break. By the time this runs, if people haven't seen the fucking Avengers, you know what? And there, and this is going to be the spoiler. And Daenerys sits on the throne. All right. No, just kidding. We don't know I that really yet. Don't we know don't know that yet. I really yet. don't know that. Sorry. Yes, we don't know that yet. And it's a, 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 we will definitely talk about that <laughs> at a future future episode. But, I, you know, I, I think the thing that blew me away is that 50% of, of cannabis investors have sold another non-cannabis stock to buy a weed stock. That blows me away. It, it means that they are they are all in from an investor perspective. Um, that they they believe so wholeheartedly in this industry that they are selling General Electric or General Motors to buy General Cannabis. Well, I think that another question you could ask is, what are you selling to to um, buy cannabis stocks? Like, do you? We don't know that it's GM. It could be, you know, a biotech. So I don't know. That could be interesting too. We'll do that in eight months. In eight months. I think we're starting just a new calendar thing. Yes. Hashtag eight months. (laughs) Well, I think it's time now to get to to chat with Todd. So now for our conversation with Todd Fromer, my partner at KCSA. Todd. Lewis. Welcome to the show. I know this must be a little weird to have uh, me and Ann interview you, but well, you're in the hot seat now, dude. I'm happy to be here. Um, KCSA, which is you know our PR and IR firm, recently fielded a, a survey of retail and institutional investors on their exposure to, their investment in, and their thoughts about the cannabis industry. You were 
integral in helping to write this and, and to, to analyze this. What do you think the two or three biggest data points that, that were revealed? Well, I think the most important data point that I took away, uh, first off, is that um, there's a sense that the industry has already been de-risked. I think 85 or 84 percent of respondents said they felt that um, regulation was not a factor in their decision to invest. And that strikes me as something that is probably specific to the audience, right? It's a retail audience and retail investors tend to be more emotional and committed to their investments than institutional investors who, dare I say, are a little bit more cold-blooded about their- Dare, dare. <laughs> they're a little bit more cold-blooded about their uh, their uh, investing tactics than, uh, than uh, retail investors are. And I think the other one is that 50% um, of the respondents said that they took money from uh, traditional investments in their portfolio and they moved it into cannabis. I mean, that's an incredible number. That's real money, right? That's not like play money for people. That's that's real dollars. And I mean, if you think about the portfolio theory, right, the concept that you stay as diversified as you can and you benefit from the growth in the market, that just turns it on its head, right? Taking 50% of your positions and putting them in the cannabis it's a pretty significant, um, you know, uh, uh, decision to make for these guys, and I think again, it goes to the nature of of the retail investor today. Cannabis has become pervasive; they see it everywhere, so they're investing heavily in the market, and it makes a lot of sense. Not to mention the fact that the market's done incredibly well on a whole. So. You know, well, 90% of the respondents said that they had made money in cannabis stock. So why wouldn't they sell out of something else to get into cannabis? Well, right. I mean, I, I do think if you talk to some of the smart money, you know, institutional investors, they would tell you that retail investors tend to be late to the game. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily case in the case of cannabis because it seems like everybody's still early to the game. Um, that may not be the case with some of these these deals that have happened lately where so the valuations are enormous. I think that's probably, you know, if I was going to say anything was late to the game, it would be some of these more recent deals that are in the multi-billions of dollars and trading on, uh, on these valuations of uh, price to sales that are astronomical. It's amazing how uh, quickly the cannabis industry has grown in the past five years and more than that. But can you draw an analogy to any other industry that you've seen um, sprout up this quickly over the past couple of decades? Uh, absolutely. I've actually been thinking about this for months and I see a tremendous parallel between the lead up to the uh, the burst of the dot-com bubble in, um, in 2000. Um, if you look back to... 1996, and unfortunately, I was I was an IR guy back in 1996 too. Um, if you look back, you had Yahoo and eBay and WorldCom and Global Crossing and all these these companies that um, were basically uh, doing a land grab. Uh, the the mantra for all of these uh, CEOs and all the investment banks was basically get big as fast as you can and um, get big or get lost. Um, the market basically threw away all of the traditional metrics like price to sales, price to earnings, uh, cash flow generation, and um, because the money was flowing so freely, the investment banks were essentially, you know, um, pushing speculation in the market. You know, you, you had you had companies like Pets.com, if you remember. These these businesses went out. <laughs> I and still they have went the out. sock puppet. Yeah, they went out hard. They went out hard, and and unfortunately. 
I think that the jury's still out on a number of these these cannabis deals because um, while this is a very different market in that um, you're you're replacing you know an illicit market with a legal market. Um, Right, an existing market. Like there was no such thing as like the tech market before, you know, or the internet before. Right. The, you know, tech bubble. Right, and, and I, so that that is a diff, That is one of the differing uh, differentiating factors. But I do think on the on the other hand, you're you're seeing and hearing a lot of the anecdotal evidence of a bubble. People talking about cannabis becoming all things to all people, curing all diseases. And I've, I've heard it myself because I've been involved in the industry now for five years as you guys have. And, and I think that that's a little overzealous in terms of um, expectations. But again, I do think that um, there's a presumption from most of these companies that they can go back to the market at any time they want and they can raise capital at, at, uh, at great valuations. And what we learned from the bubble was that that's not the case. Um, I don't know how well your memories are serving you guys, but Alan Greenspan raised interest rates and then there was a recession in Japan. And that is what started the, the burst of the dot-com bubble. Those companies were not able to meet any of their estimates that were laid out there by the, the analyst community. And I think that you're going to see some of that now. You're going to see some of these bigger companies who couldn't wait to have everybody covering them, couldn't wait to have all these analysts. Now it's sort of be careful what you wish for. They have analyst coverage, and it's going to be hard to meet those consensus estimates, especially on the, on the, uh, to, to, uh, to be able to sustain the types of valuations that they have today. It'll be hard to do. One other thing that I noticed from the study was that 80% um, of investors were holding their cannabis assets for the long term, um, which I guess long term is defined between one and 10 years. Do you think that was, do you think that's because they've learned from the the tech bubble or do you think that um, it's just fundamentally a, a different market? Um, I don't know that anyone learned from the tech, <laughs> the tech bubble. <laughs> I, I don't know that that's that, concerning. I, yeah, I don't, I be, well, again, it was 20 years ago. Right. Um, so it's a long time. And also, I think you have to you have to look at sort of the psychology of the retail investor. Um, the the cannabis index, I think I just read, was up like 300 or th- almost 400 percent over the last couple of years. I mean, so they're making money hand over fist and retail investors tend to be much more committed and emotional in their investments. They, they tend to stick with something for the long term. So I'm not surprised to see them say, hey, I'm in cannabis for the long haul. You know, the trading community, the guys who are really smart, the guys who really, really know what they're doing, they know how to get in and out of deals as valuations change, as estimates change. Those guys are the guys who are trading in and out, and they're probably the guys who are going to make, you know, a killing. But that's their business, right? Retail investors, it's not their business, right? It's their it's their side hustle, essentially, investing in the markets. Um, you know, retail investors are not typically the savviest of investors. So my guess is they're committed for the long term because it's it's – it's just been here for a couple of years, cannabis. They think they're early. Are there warning signs that, that a, a, an investor should be looking out for? I mean, I'm not, you can never call a top. You can never call a bottom. But there are definitely like flashing lights that you you might be able to see. Like, What are the flashing lights that, that, that might be analogous from the dot-com crash to what's going on in cannabis? Yeah, I, I think like 
with the dot-com bubble, it's going to be external factors outside the cannabis industry that will have the biggest effect on the cannabis industry. Do so you, you mean the asshole in the Oval Office? Oh, uh, <laughs> you could say it that way, or you could say the the, the general. I, I just did say it the, that way. The, yeah, the stock market has been killing it. It's it's been it's been fantastic. I mean, it's doing poorly today. I think the Dow's down six hundred points on the China talk, but the reality is, um, at some point. Everyone's expecting a, 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 a correction to the market. Um, when that happens, money money tends to dry up a bit, and I think that when you start to see that happen, there can be a big effect on these companies. Remember, everything's based on valuation, so you have um, companies that are being bought at these insane price-to-sales valuations, and then when the money dries up, those deals don't get done at those values anymore. And that just brings the entire market back down. So I think cannabis companies are, are, are overvalued at this point across the board. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, it'll come back down to earth and, the, and you'll get to pick the winners from the losers. A lot of these companies that we're seeing are penny stocks, right? I mean, they, they may be trading for dollars, but they're, they're on the OTC, the over-the-counter exchange, they're on the, the CSE, the Canadian Securities Exchange, and almost none of them have gone through a traditional IPO process, which is a heavy-duty vetting process by, by the investment banks, by the Securities Exchange Commission, you know, by the entire financial community. But the vast majority of these companies have reversed into a shell. You and I have been doing this for a long time. You know, we're we're both older than dirt, uh, and we've seen historically. And that- you're both older than me, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. Good one, Ann. <laughs> um, but we've seen mostly in, in the past that companies that have backed into a shell or bought the the financial structure of a public company that is now defunct have historically not been the best companies. Is there a fundamental difference between a company, you know, the OTC shell game and the RTO game that's going yeah, up? Yeah, that's on the a Canada? really good question. There is a big difference, right? So historically, what you would see with with regard to reverse mergers was um, what what I refer to as sort of a suitcase deal, right? Someone owns the shell; they have all of the the shares, ninety nine point five percent of of the outstanding uh, issued shares. Um, and they sell that that shell, and they retain some ownership in it, and so now you have a company that has very little capital, has very little float. Yeah. Oh, wait, what does float mean, by the way? Float means the shares that are out out trading in the hands of investors, um, not not held by uh, not held by the company. So very little float and very little capital, and now they have to go sell shares to the market with no volume. And and very little operating history. It's a very very it's a that's a that's a tall mountain to climb. I think in cannabis it's very very different. You're seeing some of these big RTOs are getting done because one there's capital being put in infused into these deals from the start. So you're not seeing these companies get you know go through the RTO process with no money, right? They're they're the capital infusion is happening happening at the same time that they're doing the reverse and then they're listing for the first time. So there's volume. Um, and there's capital. And I think that those are the two missing pieces that we didn't see on the OTC. So they've really perfected sort of the, the RTO, um, especially the ones that we've seen on the CSE. And frankly, the numbers are staggering. I mean, when you look at some of these RTOs, the size of them, raising over $100 million in some cases, you never saw that on the OTC. You never saw that in sort of those traditional uh, reverse mergers. So I do think it's a very different, it's a very different uh, discussion now. 
Do you think that the cannabis industry fundamentally changed the OTC um, for other industries, or do you think it's an outlier? It's an outlier. Um, The exchange that that a stock trades on is really only as good as the stocks that trade on it, right? So, you know... Um, while the OTC is fine and, and you know, it, 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 it's an opportunity for companies to access the capital markets, you know, to be frank, it doesn't have the same stringent um, requirements that a NASDAQ or a New York Stock Exchange has or um, maybe in Canada, you know, the TSX. So, you know, the, the, the sense is um, if, you're, if you're looking at the OTC to invest your money, um, it, you know, it's probably not the safest bet. But if you want to invest in cannabis, you don't have any choice. So it's either the OTC or the CSE. In some cases, I guess New York Stock Exchange, and I guess with the case. Yeah, but of you got to be you got to be an international company. You can't be a U.S. company yeah. to be on the New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq. Yeah, you know, but but again, you know, they have the they have the the stringent requirements that some investors who are more discerning will will need. But again, if you want to be in cannabis, this is that's the only game in town. You're going to have to invest there. And it seems like there's um, a lot of the CEOs um, and management teams of these newly public cannabis companies have never had public company experience and and this rigorous vetting, um, you know, that that traditionally happens. What kind of guidance are you giving the CEOs and management teams as they prepare to go public? And how do you prepare them for their first couple of earnings calls and releases and scripts? It's interesting for sure. I try to um, to uh, reference Tony Robbins first book where (laughs) where, (laughs) really? (laughs) Yeah. Tell them to be seven feet tall and have horse teeth. If you read the first if you read the first chapter of Tony Robbins, Robin's first uh, big blockbuster book, he says, pick a role model. And I think that these cannabis companies who have very little public company experience, the CEOs typically come from either private industry or uh, they come from Wall Street. They they have no clue, um, you know, to start how to become a transparent uh, communicator and an over-discloser, which is what I think needs to happen in the cannabis space more than ever before. Um, so you need to really show them how other companies are doing it. And because cannabis is really so new, um, you have to look outside the cannabis industry for examples and role models. And there are tons of wonderful companies who do a great job at communicating and over-communicating. I think that for cannabis um, it's probably helpful for them to look in industries like um, like biotech and healthcare, where um, there are stringent guidelines there as well for reporting, um, and it's somewhat uh, guided by the FDA in terms of what they do disclose to investors. So it's a decent way for them to look at how to disclose information and how to communicate with investors. But but frankly. You have some cannabis companies who do it well and some that, that, that don't do it as well. And I think a lot of it comes uh, down to philosophy and willingness to be open and transparent with your shareholders. Because cannabis is such a new industry, we recommend to everybody that they over-communicate. The more you educate investors about what's going on, not only from a, a business perspective, but from a regulatory perspective, you can de-risk your own stock. And I think that that uh, the more they consider that in their disclosure, the better they'll the better they'll do. Not to mention, um, you're and I think you're starting to see this. I just read an interesting article. Um, I think Alan Brockstein um, wrote the article about uh, accounting firms in uh, the industry, not. Um, 
not giving as much attention to these companies and and not being the big four won't touch it. Yeah, they will not. I mean, we work with MGO LO Alliance, which is the Deloitte of cannabis, right. and they're one of the few accounting firms that will do tax and and audit for cannabis companies, and they do the consulting yeah. for the you know for the pre the pre listing. You know, you talk about the 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 accountants, but one of the biggest issues for companies that are looking to go public is finding a bank, right? I mean, you sure. need a sponsoring bank to to take you public. Sure. But none of the bulge bracket banks in the U.S. are doing it. You've, you've got a few small, well, they're not small, but, you know, the Cowens and the Jeffries of the world that are getting into the space. If I am a, a, a CEO of a, a company, a cannabis company that's looking to go public, and you were to counsel me on how to evaluate what kind of sure. bank to work with. sure. What would you counsel me? Yeah, well, so it's institutional knowledge, and it's the same reason why I, I, I think, you know, KCSA has done so well, right? We have a, a tremendous- We're patting ourselves on well, the back I don't, I don't mean to, but the truth I is- do. We have a We have a big practice here and a successful practice because we have a lot of executives here that are expert in the cannabis industry, and I think that it's a big differentiator. There aren't that many experts in this industry um, on, on the IR and PR side. So to be frank, on the banking side, and a lot of our, my friends in the banking community aren't going to love this, but track record has a lot to do with it in the cannabis industry. If they haven't done any cannabis deals, you know, it's going to be hard for those guys to to uh, to woo new new uh, new issuers. I, my feeling is you have some very good banks who have now done both uh, small, mid-size, and big deals. They have a real sense of what the market can bear. Um, I think that they have a really solid group of institutional investors that can they can go to. At least that's been my experience up in Canada. Um, there's there's a swath of institutions up there that are dedicated to cannabis space. The can accords. Yeah. The, the well, those are the banks, but but they're, they're, um, they're stable of funds, the people that are participating in their deals. Um, they've filled out some pretty big bucks, and I think that the best way for them, for these, uh, for these cannabis companies to find the right banker is to really examine the track record of these, of these banks, make sure that they've done a number of successful cannabis deals, and, and, and that's the way they have to go because everybody wants to be in the cannabis space. A banker jumping into the cannabis space for the first time doesn't—it doesn't mean they're going to be successful because they've been successful in healthcare or other industries. So, I think it's important that there be some institutional knowledge at the bank. And this industry has been around five years, and there's enough firms out there that have it. You know, the GMPs, the Canaccords, Cowan—you know, those are firms that I would look at and say, hey, you know, they know what they're doing. So there, you don't only need a banker to go public. You need an accounting firm. Ideally, you'll have a PR firm or an IR firm. And without being too much of like padding KCSA yeah, on the back, right. if you same, you're talking to the same same CEO, how are you guiding him or her to pick that that professional services provider? Is it more than just experience? Is it what are the other elements? Well, I think in cannabis, um, the bigger the better on the accounting side. Um, you want to have lawyers that obviously understand the regulatory landscape, so you need someone with institutional knowledge there. But on the accounting side, I mean, you can really work with anyone, but the bigger the better. And I think you know it goes without saying that um, the smaller cannabis companies are going to struggle getting attention from an accounting firm. So they can't pay those kind of fees. Yeah, and they can't pay those kind of fees. So they really need you know look. Everybody's jockeying to be involved in cannabis. I've seen other accounting firms 
firms contacting us, asking us if we can make recommendations to our clients for them. So I don't think there's a shortage of firms wanting to get into the industry. I think, again, more resources in an accounting firm are important. And then when it comes to our world, professional services, and, and you know, again, it's, you know, I'm just going to repeat what I said before. Institutional knowledge means so much. Um, you know, we are engaged in the industry. And I think that anyone who's looking to communicate to investors, uh, build a, a, a larger audience of investors, or get their story told in the business financial press or the trade press, they have to work with a, a provider that has relationships that are deep, that have been, uh, that have been nurtured over time. And, and there aren't too many firms out there that, that can offer that. So that's, a, that's how to do it. What do you think the biggest mistake a retail investor can make when it comes to picking a cannabis stock? Um, that's a really good question. That's a tough question. I think um, the biggest mistake they can make is being late to the game, which is sort of what happens to a lot of retail investors. Well, how, 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 how do you yeah, know? How do you well, know when you're late? Well, right, you know, a stock's already up 200%, 300%. You know, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's it's a... Uh, it's yeah, but old... if you had bought Amazon five years ago and it had been on a run, it's up eight thousand percent from where it was. Uh, Amazon's you know? a unicorn, and 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 I don't know that we've identified who the unicorns in cannabis are going to be at this point. And and and, and frankly, valuations are are lofty right now. So I think a lot of people get involved in the cannabis industry because it's where they need to be. I think that the smartest thing a retail investor can do is spread the wealth across a number of cannabis companies, not just stick with one or two that they think are uh, are, are sexy or appealing or on a, on a run, right? Momentum investors on the institutional side are some of the savviest people I've ever met. They really know how a stock trades. They understand what what's different from day to day with the way that stock trades. They can analyze news, they can analyze estimates, they understand what's happening in real time. Uh, that can't be expected of retail investors. So the you know the portfolio theory of investing really should apply even when you're investing within an industry. Well, so you're saying that you should be an investor and not a trader, right? Exactly, exactly. Don't you know? There's the answer to your question. Don't be a trader. Be an investor. Try to hold them for the long term and hold a number of different stocks. Maybe you want to go across, um, you know, some ancillary, some CBD and hemp companies, some medical companies, some consumer, you know, spread it out. Um, that way you're not totally exposed. What about ETFs? Um, you know, the ETF model is interesting. I, I, I like the ETF model for a long term put away investment. Um, I think that a lot of people who are interested in cannabis want to make a killing. And I don't know that people feel they can make a killing in ETFs. It is the it is truly the portfolio theory of investing in one you know in one security, um, which is great and it has a place in everybody's portfolio. But I would make ETFs part of that sort of little montage of stocks that I bought. All right, let's let's take it down for a minute. Okay, let's get some <laughs> let's get a little personal, shall we? Oh boy, <laughs> oh boy. What's keeping you up at night? Where, where, where's your stress when it comes to this industry? What, what, what's, what's finding talent you? for the firm is my biggest stressor. Um, what, what we're I, hiring. <laughs> we are, we are aggressively hiring. But um, the biggest, the biggest stressor for me right now is finding talented people that understand um, 
the practice of investor relations, public relations, social media, and, and are comfortable applying it to the cannabis space. Many of the people that um, we interview and we talk to have no cannabis experience whatsoever. So that's, that's problematic. And it becomes a, a game of trying to attract talent from, from a very small pool. And that's where we're at right now. And we're doing a good job of it. We're bringing wonderful people, but it's slower than I'd like it to be. So um, we are going to treat you like we treat all of our entrepreneurial guests. Um, you know, we talk about learning from your biggest mistakes and, and most of the biggest lessons in life are learned from failure versus learned from um, success. Uh, can you talk about what some of your mistakes have been or one of your bigger mistakes and how you've learned from it? Is this personal or private? Yes. It could be either, <laughs> okay. dude. Whatever, whatever All right, you want. So I, I think this is, this is an interesting question. So I went through a rough divorce about eight years ago. But um, to be honest, my marriage was pretty crappy for a lot longer than uh, it should have been. I should have gotten out when I saw things going south and I didn't, I hung around too long. And I think, to be honest, the same thing applies in business. Sometimes we hang on to um, strategies or we hang on to people that are toxic or just not, they don't fit the plan. And and I've, I think that it's a harsh lesson to learn, but I feel I wasted time and wasted years and aggravation and stress. It was unnecessary. I think I, in my, now that I'm older, um, no, I've you're learned, just old. I have learned to cut the cord a lot faster, and that, that was a harsh life lesson to learn, and it cost me millions of dollars and you know countless hours of uh, uh, insomnia, but um, cutting the cord is the best advice I could give to anybody who owns a business. If, if it's not working for you, don't let it bring you down. Don't let it take you down. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 look, we, we have been now business partners for 15 years. Um, and, and we've owned this company together for three and a half years. Um, for me, I think that that is that it's, you rip the bandaid off, right? Yeah. No matter how much it hurts, whether it's firing a, an employee who doesn't fit from a cultural perspective or, or doesn't deliver really, um, or firing a client who is either not paying or is abusive. Sure. Or choosing your clients wisely, right? You know, we we are a unique organization because we have a a group of individuals here who come from Wall Street. We're we're healed in, in investor relations. We know the business well. We could tell within five minutes whether or not we have a company that has a chance of succeeding or a company that's somewhat doomed for failure. Very seldom does that get away from us. And I think that as we've grown the business and become more successful and much more um, much more uh, aware, self-aware, I think that we've done a great job of choosing our clients wisely. And, and I think that that's good advice for anybody. You know, if you have the luxury of, of being um, picky and choosy about who you work with, I think that ultimately it breeds greater success. We won bigger, better accounts, better clients by having a wonderful um, uh, client base. And I think that when people look at who we represent, it's an impressive list. Ann and I have been doing this podcast now for a year and a half, a little more. We're north of 80 episodes. It's been, for me, one of the most interesting, fulfilling experiences in my professional career. I really love doing this. Um, it has actually, Ann and I have worked together for 15 years, and it's deepened our friendship. Um, we're going to launch another podcast. Do you yeah, want to talk a little bit exciting. about that? Well, 
I at first my first inclination was this is a lot more work because I see how busy you guys are. <laughs> and, it is, and I know how it's another client. Yep, that's how we treat it. Right, absolutely, and and that's how I looked at it, and I wondered whether or not it was going to be good for the business. And then you sent me a video, um, which I was a short clip of somebody explaining how to use the podcast to help grow your business. And when I read when I saw that, it it hit me. You know, the clients come to you. So it's this has been a wonderful uh, opportunity for uh, for KCSA. And I mean, just the whole endeavor has been amazing. You guys have been amazing. Um, and and frankly, this is this is a cool experience for me to get to to do this with you guys. But uh, on the healthcare side, look, you know, that's a that's a market that we have real institutional knowledge of. We have really wonderful executives here who understand the space. I'm excited to see what kind of what kind of uh, content we're going to be able to produce there. Um, I hope that it's uh, as successful as this, but I'm gonna. I find it hard to believe that anything is going to be as successful as this. This was really this was a rocket ship. Well, so you and Caitlin Kasnick, and Caitlin was on with us a couple of weeks ago when we interviewed um, Dr. Rothbard from Catexco, are going to be doing a healthcare podcast, a similar, slightly different format, but pretty much similar, where it will be a regular show where you and she are going to be interviewing some of the leaders in regenerative health, in alternative health, clinical companies. Sure. I think our timing is going to be late summer when it's going to launch. Um and it will be similar format. Uh, and I think you're going to do great, man. I think you've got you've got a, a face for radio. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but you have a great voice. And I think that you and Caitlin will play well off each other. And for the for the listeners of of this this show who are interested in investing and understanding um, the depth of what's going on in science and medicine, you're going to have a great opportunity um, to one, get to know Todd and Caitlin the same way that you've gotten to know um, um, me and Ann. And also I think, you know, for the companies out there that are some, some of them straddling the cannabis and science line and others just straight up science and, and pharma, they're going to have a great time with you. Absolutely. And and I'll tell you what, you know, regenerative medicine is actually something I'm very interested in and passionate about. I think that it really is the future. Um, if you look and see what what uh, Kite and uh, and Novartis, what these companies have done and the, the, the amazing the amazing technology behind some of these uh, precision therapies, they're saving lives. I mean, it's it's awesome. And I'm happy to start talking to some of the real leaders and the and the minds behind these technologies. So uh, it's it's really interesting, and I think anybody who's interested in in how, what I believe is going to be the next new new thing in terms of uh, of healthcare and biotech, I, I believe it's a regenerative space. So excited to be there. Well, we can't wait, and we'll definitely be plugging it. And um, I can see there being a lot of overlap. So, um, you know, you might hear Todd's voice um, in this space some other time. Um, but Todd, before we let you go, okay, um, what's the one article? And it doesn't necessarily have to be cannabis. You can make it healthcare if you want. Um, that that you wish was being written tomorrow. In the Wall Street Journal, what do you want to what do you want to open up the Wall Street Journal, and what's the article you want to see? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Um, if if there was an article that I wanted to see written in the Wall Street Journal, I think it would be 
an article about the politics of this nation and how it's going to affect the legalization of cannabis. I really, I, I'm beside myself with what's going on in our government in terms of the divisiveness. Um, and I really, really feel that this uh, industry and ultimately the, the health care capability of this industry, the, you know, should not be put off due to, you know, what is essentially incredible partisanship um you know we got to move forward as a country and i think cannabis is a is a perfect example of something that should move forward regardless of party lines because it has so much potential to help um the the sick um it has so much potential to help those people that are in pain um and i don't know that a second trump uh um uh, uh, term is going to see I us just legalizing. Threw up in my mouth. I don't. Well, I don't know. Well, I don't know that a second Trump term is going to see the legalization of cannabis. But then again, I don't know that it's a, a, a new Democratic term will because they've made this thing a, a wedge issue, and and frankly, it shouldn't be. It sh we have to move forward on this. This is this is real. Um, this is real commerce. This is real medicine, and it's got to move forward. Man, thank you so much. I know you were a little nervous about doing this, and you were phenomenal. Thanks, buddy. Um, and thank we, you, Anne. Thank you, Todd. This was awesome. Yeah, we've been talking with Todd Fromer, who um, is a managing partner at KCSA Strategic Communications. Todd oversees the investor relations practice, has 25-plus years of Wall Street experience, and um, also has, over the last you know, 10 years become one of my closest friends. So it's yes. been a real pleasure to chat with you. Um, as always, if you want to chat with us, with me and Ann, and now Todd and Nick and Caitlin and Annie and Shay, you can find us on Twitter um, at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram with the handle at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the Green Rush on your favorite podcatcher. You can email us at the Green Rush at KCSA.com. I'm waiting for the hate mail. I'm bring it. Just bring it. And Shay, that's one take, my friend. One take. Get